Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. This week we have Alexander Shia joining us, author of Heart and Mind. We hope that you have an opportunity to participate with us as well. Enjoy. So I know that traditionally uh, a question is put out and uh, at the very beginning, but I want to talk a little bit about the holy disruptive moments in my life and then give you a chance to think about what have been the disruptive moments in your life. Um, I grew up, I'm the kid from Birmingham, Alabama in the 1950s. And when I think about the the critical disruptive moments in my life, I'm sorry that they're so dramatic, but I lived through very, very tumultuous days in in the American South. My family had come from Lebanon uh, at the turn of the old century. And for some strange reason, they went through Ellis Island and went to Birmingham, Alabama. (laughs) You know, there's Los Angeles, there's, no, Birmingham. And uh, Birmingham uh, was a boom town in the early 1900s because of the steel. But right after World War I, the economy crashed And the uh, wealthy barons of Birmingham looked around and they said, oh no, we've got a city full of immigrants. What are we going to do? And they gave the golden handshake to the KKK. And the KKK came in and ran the city officially from the about 1920 until the early 1960s. What most people don't realize is that in Birmingham, the word colored meant certainly the African-American population, but it also meant the Lebanese, and it meant the Greeks, and it meant the Italians, and it meant any of us from the southern Mediterranean which had a darker skin tone. So the first disruptive moment of my life, as dramatic as it is, I'm six years old, and I'm standing in front of my grandmother in Arabic, my Sitho's home which has just been firebombed by the KKK. And as a six-year-old, I don't understand why anyone would want to harm my family. That gives you a sense of how uh, all of us of darker skin were on the other side of the tracks in Birmingham. The next major disruptive moment that I remember Uh, I was 11 years old, and I came home from school. Um, Anybody read the book or remember the film Help? That's my life. Uh, Most of us in the American South were raised by incredibly beautiful and skilled black women. And we had to learn how to do this dance between a black woman who was our affectional mother and Uh, our mother, who was sometimes quite removed from our life. And unfortunately in my life, my parents had both been very sick and I was very, very blessed to have Emily in my life. But this day I came home from school and sat down and there was, you know, a snack at the table and Emily came and sat at the table with me and she only did that when 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 the rest of the family was not around because that was foreboding. And she started, and I'm embarrassed to say, but in those days she would call me Master Alexander. And she kept stumbling over my name, and I knew that there was something that she wanted to ask me. 
I couldn't figure out why because we had a very close relationship and a very easy conversation relationship. And she just kept, and finally I said, Emily, just tell me. And she said, well, you, you have to promise not to tell your parents. And I'm like, what? And she said, yeah, you have to promise me not to tell your parents. So here I am, an 11-year-old who is about to do the worst thing a, a, a Lebanese son can do, which is to hold something back from their parents. So I said, okay. And she said, will you teach me to write my name? Now, for those of you who know history, she wanted to go down and register to vote. But in those days, what kept most black people in Birmingham from being able to register is that they couldn't write their name. And she was concerned, and I can't say without just cause, that if my parents knew, they would fire her. Next disruptive moment, as I graduated high school and I went to the University of Notre Dame, that used to know how to play football. Um, we are ever hopeful like the Cubs. Um, while I was there, I began to discover my sexuality in a way that I had not known. I should say that my name, Alexander, was given to me by my father because I come from a 13-generation tradition that the son that's going to be the next priest in the family line is given the name Alexander at birth and is raised to be that role for the family. Um, in old Lebanese villages, uh, the priest is not something that you discern as an adult. It's something that you are named and given as an obligation at birth. I was given that. And my whole life was being prepared for seminary, but I had the forethought to negotiate with my family, and it was a hard negotiation. Uh, to go to college before seminary, which I am so ever grateful for. And while in college, I ban began to discover my sexuality. I began to discover that I was gay. And I was so graced to have theological professors who affirmed that. This is, we're talking 1971. Um, and really uh, took away years and years and years of, of guilt and shame. But I was preparing to be a Catholic priest, and I knew that that meant celibate. I just wasn't prepared to be neutered. Uh, so when I went to seminary, I, I went to seminary uh, having told everyone in the discernment process that I'm gay. This is like, like 1974. But when I got into seminary, um, what, whereas everybody up to that point had said, sure, 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 uh, suddenly when I was there, it was like, be quiet and go away, and don't talk about it. And there came this night at the table with other seminarians when there was a horrible series of fag jokes being shared. And I just got up from the table and went back to my room and in that moment made the decision that I had to leave seminary. What that decision meant was I had to go against 13 generations of my family. I had to call and tell my parents I was leaving seminary, and my father's response to me was, in 13 generations, no son has ever told his father 
he's not going to do what his family obligation is. I don't believe that, but nevertheless, um, my father and I never put our relationship back together from that moment. But I knew for my own authenticity, for my own integrity, for who I was, that I could not uh, agree to be uh, other than who I am. Whether I was celibate or whether I was sexually active wasn't, wasn't the issue. The issue was I was gay. And, I, and that was an, an integral part of who I am, and it was an integral part of my spirituality. But that choice had to be made in the face of a Lebanese family that never, to this moment, has never affirmed that. So in a, after our time of discussion, I'm going to come back and I'm going to share with you how those formative experiences of my life helped me see something very ancient and very new about the Gospels. Basically, each one of these texts came to a people in a moment of disruption, and they didn't know how to live forward. Just to, to name, whether mild or dramatic, uh, a disruptive moment in your life. Probably all of us, most of us will be familiar with the opening words of the Gospel of John, in the beginning is the word. I want to propose to you that as beautiful as that text is, it's very poorly translated for us today. And I don't have time to do the Aramaic, which is underneath the Greek. Um, I will say for anybody who's here who's a scholar of the Greek world and the Greek language, let us remember that in the first century, Greek was the language of oppression and persecution. Um, the Christ event had to stand against the Greek world because the Greek world was about who's in and who's out, who's on top and who's on bottom, et cetera, et cetera. And so, when, when most Greek scholars read John in Greek, they read it in the worldview of the oppressor, not understanding that John is explaining an Aramaic experience which is deconstructing the Greek world. Here is the Aramaic experience, not 
the Greek language experience of John's text, but the Aramaic experience, which is about journey, about fluidity. Um, in Aramaic, everything is about now. There's very little sense of tense. You can't talk very much about yesterday or tomorrow because Aramaic was a language about right here, right now. And in Aramaic, because everything is about now, everything is in process, everything is moving, everything is dynamic. That's how it gets its sense of tense. Nothing is static. Uh, here is the opening of John's text in an Aramaic Semitic understanding. In every beginning is God's breath. In every beginning is God's breath. Every time you hear in the scripture God said, that's one possible translation and an equal translation, and I think a better translation today would be, and God breathed. In every beginning is God's breathing. And breathing is with God. And breathing is God. And breathing is in the beginning with God. And all things come into being through God's breathing. And without God's breath, not one thing comes into being. First of all, in an Aramaic understanding of that text, we're not talking about some, some time way back then. In Aramaic, the, this moment is the beginning. Five seconds, this moment is a beginning. Another few seconds, this moment is a beginning. It's only about now, not even five seconds ago. So in every moment, God is breathing, and that's why we are here, and that's why the cosmos is here. The cosmos, in an Aramaic sense, is the dynamic manifestation of the cells of God's breath. The cosmos is the dynamic manifestation of the cells of God's breath. That's what John is conveying to us. And John is conveying that this ongoingness has been from the beginning moment until whatever the end moment may be. Now, the, the piece I want to add to this, and there are many, many other people that are talking about this incredible dynamism and the nowness. The gift I think I bring is to talk about that there's a pattern in the nowness. I love Rob Bell talks about the hum, but just like the hum or the breath, it's in a pattern. Breathing has an expulsion, it has an intake, and it has a moment of stillness between those two. That pattern is what we can call the Christ. God has put into the universe at the first moment of time the pattern of the Christ. The Christ is a dynamic pattern of movement. And that pattern of movement governs the way cells grow and divide. It governs the way we as humans develop. It governs the way that the, the stardust moves and the galaxies move in a pattern that can be as simple, simplified down to there is an outbreath, a stillness, 
there is an in-breath, a stillness, an out-breath, a stillness, an in-breath, a stillness. So when we hear about the Christ from the first moment of time, let's try to imagine this as a dynamic pattern of movement that the universe is in service to. Nothing happens in the universe that doesn't adhere to somewhat of this very simple pattern of out-breath, stillness, in-breath, stillness, out-breath, stillness, in-breath, stillness. So I learned about this pattern, first of all, in my anthropology work as an undergrad. And then I began to learn about this pattern in my psychological work. And then I began to see this pattern in underneath all my theological work. And I kept asking myself, was there something about this pattern that ordered our choice and our naming of the four gospel texts? And intuitively, it made sense that because even though this pattern can be talked about in very complex language, that when you get it down to its simplest form, it has a four-moment process. Could that in any way have been underneath the choice and the ordering of the gospel text? And I kept looking, and I kept trying to force it, and I had enough integrity that when I felt like I was forcing it to step back, and I kept looking. Until finally, in the year 2000, I was reading a book by an Anglican scholar, the Robin Robert Griffith Jones, and what he did in his book was he summarized what was going on in the four communities when the texts were composed. And the anthropologist and the psychologist looked at the narrative of those four communities and went, could it be? that each text was written not to tell us about the historical life of Jesus because you really go to a history section for that in a, in, a, in a bookstore. It's not very effective as history because history doesn't tell me how to live. History tells me about a past event. But what if these texts were telling me about how Jesus is leading us to respond to these four moments in our life. Jesus is giving us a teaching about four moments in our life that every one of us know and experience over and over and over and over again. And those four moments are, how do we face change? And I'm gonna slip a little bit ahead to here to say, the question of how we face change is, I believe, how the early Christians chose the gospel text we call Matthew. The entire text is about how through the power of Jesus the Christ and the grace of death and resurrection, we face change. And the next question is, how do we move through times of great trial and obstacle? And the early Christians chose the, the text we call Mark to be a text which would teach us how, through the power of death and resurrection, we move through trials and obstacles. 
The third question is, how do we receive joy? And how do we know the meaning of joy? And for that question, the early Christians chose the text of John. And the fourth question is, how do we mature in service? How do we, give our, how do we appropriately give our lives in service to each other and to the world? And for that question, the early Christians chose the text that we call Luke-Acts. Now, how did the early Christians know these four questions about change and trial and joy and service? Well, there's a springtime festival in Judaism. Can you imagine what that festival is? The great, the, the Jewish people really have two great festival moments in their life, and one is Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur in the fall time. What's the great festival in the springtime? Passover. However, guess what? Um, if you've been to a Seder meal of, it's, if a Jewish family has invited you to a Seder meal or if you have in any way have participated in a Seder meal in your life, how many people have? Okay. Let me tell you, uh, Jesus would not, in the historical times, would not have recognized what Jews do today as Passover. All of that was created 200 years after the temple was destroyed. None of it, it has a minor, minor, minor relationship to how Passover was celebrated if we think of Jesus at table with the disciples. Here's what they were doing. Um, this moment for them was a moment of community reflection. And the head of the household that night, yes, there would have been a lamb that was slain that day, there was not a lot of other rituals around the table, except that everybody was gathered, and the head of the household is going to say, we know that our ancestors were slaves in Egypt. And we know that Moses came and offered them the chance of liberation. And that each of them had to make a decision about whether they were going to go with Moses or not. Where in your life right now are you locked in slavery? Where right now are you locked in an emotion that feels like it has you? Where are you locked in an addiction? Where are you locked in fear and anxiety right now? Talk, talk, talk around the table. <laughs> now it goes back to the head of the household. We know that those of our ancestors who went with Moses went out into the desert and they wandered in a wilderness unto death. Now the head of the household is going to ask the question again. Where right now are you in a wilderness? Where right now do you feel like you're wandering without direction? Where right now do you feel locked down as like some part of you is dying? Work, relationship, passion, back to the head of the household. We know that Yahweh finally led the Jewish people across the Jordan into the promised land. Where tonight, where this morning, 
Are you hearing God's new promise? What's the whisper or the roar of that promise in your life right now? Talk, talk, talk around the table. Finally, very late in the evening, as the meal is, has come to a conclusion, and people are going to take the fifth cup, which is the cup of Elijah, which in the Jewish world is the cup of compassion for all people. And with this fifth cup is going to come the last question of the night. We know that it took 200 years for our ancestors, having arrived at the promised land, to make it into their everyday, ordinary reality. What tonight are you going to commit yourself to, to do, to build up yourself and your family and your community over the next year? These four questions were the foundational spiritual practice of Judaism for almost a thousand years. Can you now understand why the Jewish Christians understood that they were not going to recreate this journey of God that they'd been celebrating all of their life in four steps or four questions. All they needed was they needed the gospel text to give them the question in the life of Jesus. So when we get to the second century and we hear Irenaeus, who is the very first person to talk about the choice of a gospel text, Irenaeus says the revelation is one, but it must have four accounts. He did not say what all of our scholars have told us we've got to look for for the last 500 years, which are the true stories of Jesus. No, he didn't say we're looking for the true stories of Jesus. He says we're looking for four accounts. Why would they be looking for four accounts rather than the true story of Jesus? Because they weren't looking for the historical verification of Jesus' life. They were already baptized. They already knew that life. What they were looking for was tell me how to live that life. Tell me, show me Jesus' teaching about the four great questions that we live our lives by. Because even in these early days, the first Christians were devout Jews still celebrating Passover. So they knew that the gospel was going to be four. And they knew that each text had to adhere or explain to us or give us the experience of how to live a particular question in our life. And so uh, with that thread and by the work of the Spirit, they not only chose four texts, but they put them in an identifiable reading sequence. In the first 500 years of our tradition, we would never just pick up Mark without knowing that we were in the middle of the movie. The story doesn't start with Mark. The story starts with the question of change, which is Matthew. And Matthew's work leads us to the question of how we move through trial, and how we move through change and trial leads us to the question of joy, and how we move through change, trial, and joy leads us to the question of service. It is a seamless story. And where each text ends, where Matthew ends is where Mark opens. And where Mark ends is where John opens. And where John ends is where Luke opens. And where Luke ends, bends right back around to the beginning of Matthew. So here's the thumbnail 
of these four chapters of the one gospel. And that's really a much better way to say it. These are not four different texts. They are one story about how we live our lives in Jesus the Christ, and it has four chapters. The text of Matthew was written to the Jewish Christian community in the days right after the temple was destroyed and the Jewish priesthood was massacred and they woke up in this awful moment and everybody said to them, this is the apocalypse, this is the end time. And Matthew turns that right around and says, I never, ever, ever want to hear a Christian talk about an end time because in our tradition we know that every end is but the beginning. Every end is the beginning. Every end means I'm stuck in the disruptive moment rather than understanding that the disruptive moment has not come as the period, this disruptive moment has become the first word in a new sentence. And the entire text of Matthew is a teaching about how we move from thinking that we're in an end time to understanding that we're in a beginning time. And I love, I, I just, just as one small tidbit, um, I love the ending of Matthew's text because it's one of those little details that none of us ever thinks about. The risen Jesus at the end of Matthew appears on an unnamed mountain. Ever thought about why the risen Jesus, the name of the mountain that the risen Jesus would appear on would not be given to us? That's not very Jewish. The whole Jewish tradition is about naming and making sacred great events. Matthew gives us the text of Jesus appearing on the unnamed mountain precisely because we're in the first question of change. And as soon as Matthew names that mountain, what are we all going to do? And my, my jiddo, my grandfather, is going to be there with the souvenir stand 20 minutes before you arrive. <laughs> These texts are not about history. These texts are about spiritual practice. And in the moment of change, everyone wants us, every, everything in us wants to go back to some golden moment, whether it was five minutes ago or, or, or you know, five months ago, how we could long now for another presidency. No! That's not where the Christ is. The Christ is never back there. The Christ is right here, helping us find a new answer. And so the risenness of the Christ in the text of change cannot be a place that we can identify because as soon as we identify it, we're on the road back to it, rather on the road forward to some place we don't yet know we're going. Mark's text. Mark's text was written to the Christian community in Rome in the summer of the year 64. Anybody, any good historian here know what was going on in Rome in the summer of 64? Not 1964, but 64. <laughs> Nero is emperor. What's happened in Rome in, in that terrible year? Yeah, Rome burns. And guess who gets blamed for it? Just every time anything bad happened in Rome, the Jewish community got named for it. But for some reason, 
Nero didn't blame the whole Jewish community this time. He blamed the Christ believers that were part of the Jewish community. And the soldiers are coming and they're knocking on the door. And every head of the household is going to have to give an answer. And depending on your answer, you and all of your family down to your grandchildren are going to be taken to the Circus Maximus and killed. In the presence of small ones, I'm not going to describe how that killing happened. So this text of Mark is the prayer of a people that are facing annihilation. It's the prayer of we know that our lives are worth giving because we know that there's something better that's going to come. That the giving of our life is not the end of the story. We can now understand why the text of Mark starts with the story of John the Baptist out in the wilderness. We know how John the Baptist ended up. John the Baptist ended up being killed on a, on a, governor's, on a governor's drunken whim. How unjust, how un, unfair. The Jewish Christians of, of Rome were being asked to emulate in their lives exactly what John the Baptist did. To be a messenger of greater love and glory even if it means that you have to give your life. Third gospel text of John, we believe coming from the great city of Ephesus. Now, the community in Ephesus has got a different drama going on. You know, Matthew's community was believed that they were in the apocalypse because the end of the temple and the priesthood Mark's community is facing a physical annihilation because they've been blamed for the burning of Rome. John's community is in the abundant, affluent, beautiful city of Ephesus, a lively women's community, a place where people from Ephesus to India gathered because of the Roman courts that were there. But do you know what's going on underneath the city of Ephesus? Do you know why Ephesus was the second wealthiest city in the Roman Empire? Because it was the center of the slave market. And on the top of Ephesus is this beautiful, expansive city, and underneath Ephesus are a series of caves and pathways where the slaves were kept out of sight. And to this moment, Paul and Paul's disciples preached to Ephesus about the dignity of every person, full well knowing what's going on underneath this city, and singing the praise of freedom and liberation and dignity for all. And so this text of John is... Uh, is the most beatific vision of what the human family and the cosmos can be, how we can live in diverse, treasured harmony with each other. 
But the text also comes with a bite because it faced into the lion of Ephesus' economy. And what you find in this text of John are beautiful rituals which we were asked to, to remember the expansiveness of this love. John is the only text that gives us a foot washing. Foot washing is Jesus the Christ who holds the cosmos in his hands, takes off all of his clothes. We forget this because we don't know Jewish history. Jesus is going to stand before all of those at table that night in the way that a Jewish man only stands before his betrothed. A Jewish man is obligated not to stand in his underwear before anyone except his wife. But when we hear that Jesus took off his outer, that's all he was wearing, folks. He's standing there in his Armani or whatever. This is more shocking than anything else. Jesus is showing the intimacy of our relationship with all people. You can hear the reverberations in Ephesus, all people, even the thousands that are locked in the caves beneath us. So John's text is a, is a text of the beatific vision and this overwhelming love, but it also shows us what it's going to cost us to begin to live this way. The Lucan text. Lucan text written to the question of how we mature in service. This text composed to the Jewish Christian community at the time that we were in a mutual divorce of each other. Judaism has a bad hair day. And literally, I mean that. They have a very, they have a, they have a very short period, a very bad hair day that gets locked into our Gospels. And what that was is after the temple and the, and the priesthood is gone, Judaism is concerned that their 2,000-year tradition is about to end. Does that sound familiar? Can you, a, a religious tradition 2,000 years old, and they fear that they're about to lose it all? And in that moment, the leaders of Judaism get very uh, protective and dogmatic. Have we ever heard that today? And they start throwing out all these rules because they're trying to hang on to what was. I understand the desire to hang on. But Jesus the Christ is saying, let go and move forward. Let go and move forward. And so the text of Luke is about two things. One is, if we are moving forward, we're not going to be bitter and recriminative of the fact that we have to move forward. We're not going to get locked into hatred and argument with our parent tradition. We just simply are going to pick up our mat and walk because we have to. But the second thing is even more poignant because we're no longer considered part of the Jewish community. The emperor now is more than upset with us. The emperor is in a rage with us. And why is the emperor in a rage with us? The emperor doesn't care about Jesus Christ. The emperor's got 50 gods, goddesses, and tree spirits to contend with. The only thing the emperor wants to know is, 
Are you going to obey my laws and keep the, the social order of the empire? What are we doing? We're not keeping the social order of the empire. We're raising the status of women. We are not yet advocating equality, but we're raising the status of women. We are speaking to slaves and telling them that they are worthy of respect and dignity. We are not yet advocating for the abolition of slavery. But we are treating the slave as a human person of worth. We are saying, if you have wealth, you have an obligation to share it with those who have less. It is not the name of Jesus the Christ that has the emperor in a rage. It's our value system and the way that we choose to live because the emperor knows if this continues, he will lose his power. And he's right. He does lose his power 235 years later. Christians, by the power of the journey and the grace of what's in the text of Luke, understand that they've got to do a work that they're probably not going to see the turnaround on. I want us to hear this today. We cannot be concerned about the turnaround. Luke says to us, and Luke does this in very small ways throughout his whole text, he keeps saying, now, here, now. I love, Mark gives us the text where, where Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Luke says, pick up your cross today and follow me. I think that also means when you go to bed tonight, put it down. If you are going to be involved in the long walk, I'm sorry, you can't be carrying the cross every moment. Can't, you cannot exhaust yourself beyond what you physically and what grace can carry you to do. Luke is very clear about keep your eye on only what you're being asked to do now, today. Do not look down the road. It's not going to help you to look down the road. You're going to get discouraged or bitter or resentment or whatever. To God, the Spirit, has asked me to do this today. Do it with a light heart filled with joy. Over and over and over again. Luke's text of the Our Father. Luke's text says, pray for your bread daily. Matthew says, pray for your daily bread. Just hear that small difference because Luke knows that he's giving the message of Jesus to a community that's got a long road ahead and few of us alive today are going to see the turnaround. I'm going to end with words of, or pause and, and give it a time for us to go back into sharing with the words of Martin Luther King Jr., words that meant a great deal to me as a small boy in Alabama, uh, standing outside of my grandmother's house that had been burned. Martin Luther King spoke, said, send your hooded perpetrator into our neighborhoods at the midnight hour. Burn our homes, beat our children, break our bones, and we will not hate you. I'll just stop at this moment. 
Who today are we being called to not hate, no matter how much we may feel their persecution? We will not hate you. We cannot in good conscience obey unjust laws. And we will win our freedom. But we will so appeal to your heart and to your conscience by our ability to suffer. It's hard to have an argument with Martin Luther, but I would... I think today probably a better word than suffering would be our ability to love. They they go to the same place. We will so appeal to your heart and to your conscience by our ability to suffer, our ability to love, that when we win our freedom, it will be twofold. For we will have won yours as well. That's the text of Luke. We're on a long, long, long road. It's not up to us to win anything. It's just up to us to stay true to our spiritual practice and leave the rest to spirit. Spirit can't do it without each of us doing our part. But each of us doing our part is not any of us winning the battle. So, how much time do we have, Corey? Uh, yeah, we'll do for this. Okay. Yeah. So, I just want to summarize that what I'm describing is, is that the Gospels are our life in Jesus rather than the life of Jesus. What's, what's driving them is not history, but spiritual practice. The text of Matthew is Jesus teaching us the spiritual tra- practice of how to face change. Every story in there. Mark is teaching us how, through the life of Jesus, to face great trial and suffering. John is teaching us how to receive joy and let it flow through to us and out to the fourth question, which is, Luke, which is written to the question of how through Jesus the Christ we mature in service. And that this pattern of change, trial, joy, serve is the pattern underneath God's breath and the hum of the universe that I believe every cell is in service to. So the question, what from this time, what's the idea, the thought, the action, the gesture that you might take from this morning uh, to your life this week? Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.